This episode of See Here is brought to you by the Wizard of Oz. In Oz. Of Oz. I forgot. Whichever end of time you happen to be listening to us now, you're listening to the See Here podcast, episode 33. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Morris, and I'm based here in Melbourne. I'm very excited because we have a very Melbourne-centric movie to talk about. But before I mention that, I'd like to introduce my esteemed co-hosts. First of all, on the right of my Skype screen is Bernard Stickwell. Good. Oh, I think it's afternoon for you, isn't it? Good afternoon, Bernie. It is good afternoon, just Yeah. Hey, uh, everyone. How's it going? It's wonderful to hear your voice. In the middle of my Skype screen is my wonderful friend and colleague from Seoul in South Korea, Mr. Tim Merrill. Hey, how are you? You can show a little bit more enthusiasm for the movie under discussion if you want. <laughs> and on the, <laughs> on the left of my Skype screen is the man who I'm going to refer to as James Brown. Why? Because he's the hardest working man in podcasting. <laughs> You know him as the host of The Projection Booth. I introduce to you the See Here audience, Mr. Mike White. Good morning to you, Mike. Good morning. I haven't had my coffee yet, but let's hope that I can stay awake during this discussion. Oh, gosh, yeah. I think you've given us an indication as to where you stand on this form already, but... <laughs> But uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll come to that. We're going to you know, have a little bit of a chat with you, Mike, about your activities and exactly why we believe that you're the hardest working man in podcasting. But before we do that, just to make mention that today's episode is to discuss the 1976 film from the director Chris Levine, made in and around Melbourne. So it was wonderful to see all these places that I knew, but we'll get to that. Uh, the film is called Oz. Uh, came out in 1976. A lot of great music from some iconic Australian musicians of the period. And uh, we'll get to talking about that in a little bit. But first of all, Mike, the hardest working man in podcasting, you would already be if your only activity was the projection booth. But would you mind filling in the audience about some of the other things you've been up to recently? Oh, well, I've been uh, guesting on a lot of stuff, including uh, small screen cinema, where I got to talk about Columbo. So that was a real treat. I mean, uh, I Love, love Columbo. So hopefully my enthusiasm comes through on that episode. Oh, my wife, my wife, my wife. Oh, listen, just one more thing. Um, uh, my wife. Oh, there's one little thing. Um, uh, my wife, my wife. And also, uh, helping to stump for Chris Gore with the whole save film threat, the Kickstarter that he's doing. I was on an episode of 1201 Beyond to talk about that and it featured a nice interview with Chris done by Josh Hadley. And also, uh, I stopped by the culture cast every once in a while, Chris Dashu's, uh, show over at cultureshock.com and got to talk about King Kong versus Godzilla, both the uh, American and the original Japanese version. So huge differences there, which I got to go through a little bit and uh, talk about the Battle of the Beasts. And you have a very exciting project coming up 
next year that you've just announced on the Facebooks. Would you uh, like to talk to the audience about that? Yeah, next year we are going to be doing the Kolchak tapes. That's actually uh, Chris Dashu and I are going to be taking on. Yes. And once a month we're going to look at a Kolchak episode. Start at the beginning and go all the way through. Plus, we'll probably make stops to talk about the comic books, the novels, the, of course, the Stuart Townsend's show. That'll be a, a poor way to wrap up the whole thing when we reach that point in probably, what, two years or something. So, uh, unfortunately, we'll end with a whimper and not a bang, but... Hey, it'll be just like the uh, the Star Wars movies, you know. Just uh, keep going there with some right. great stuff out of the gate, hitting them with episode four, episode five, and then episode six, and then the prequels. So <laughs> it will basically be ending with the prequels. <laughs> yeah, I almost want to start now and work backwards in time. I was going to say it's kind of sad with the the Kolchak tapes because there's nobody really associated with the TV show anymore that's still left alive, right? I mean, I think there's maybe yeah, one. Yeah, no, it's... Uh, well, David Chase is still with us, so I'm chasing him down. Right. Ha ha. There's some bit players, and yeah, there's a couple writers here and there. But yeah, the big names like Jeff Rice and, of course, Darren McGavin are no longer with us. Dan Curtis. But I was thinking like, well, you know, I'd like to do a Columbo podcast, but there have been two. I think there's still two Columbo podcasts out there right now, though I think one of them might have switched to like Sledgehammer or something. And I was like, well, and then MASH, but there's already a pretty good MASH cast out there. And I was like, well, I don't think anybody's doing a Colchat cast so that's one of the other favorite shows of mine fantastic when's that supposed to start then mike that hopefully will be january of 2017 Cool. All right. Well, we'll be sure to uh, put up posts here and no doubt it'll be all over the projection booth pages as well. So listeners out there, if you're a big fan of the projection booth and why wouldn't you be and you know what Mike's capable of, keep an eye out for that. And all the episodes, they're on YouTube, aren't they? I believe so. Yeah, I've, I have the DVD set, so I haven't really looked. It's pretty accessible, right. even if you're... Uh, not old enough to have remembered the show during its original broadcast run, there's always an option for you to go out and check it out, and it really will be so worth it. So follow through the show and the adventures of Carl Kolchak, certainly ahead of its time. And I take it that you'll be making references to the X-Files at some stage. Oh, definitely. Well, and especially when it comes to the kind of those quote-unquote crossover episodes and then even uh what was the the manager of flight of the concords bernie when he shows up in one of the the later x-files the new x-files dressed as carl kolchak so there's a there's a lot of crossover one thing i wanted to say too mike about the projection booth before uh i forget was that you always amaze me because you almost have this kind of crystal ball where like you're reading our minds when i i say man I would love to hear somebody cover Sunny Boy. And lo and behold, they're <laughs> on it. The films I can think of and you're you're already ahead of uh, one step ahead and and that's what I love about your show so much. Well, it could it could have been one of those weird things since I announced doing episodes like, you know, 8 months in advance or something. So maybe you just had the seed in the back of your head and then you're like, "Where is that episode? Where could that be?" And lo and behold, that's what I'm yeah, editing yeah. this weekend. All right. Oh, nice. All right, at this stage, what we'll do now is 
get into our discussion of the film Oz, or as it was known in America, 20th Century Oz. Either way, if you haven't seen the film and want to give it a bit of a watch before you listen to the rest of this podcast, then the film is on YouTube. I've gone and put a link to it on the Facebook page for See Here, so go check that out if you uh, haven't already done so. And we'll be back in a few minutes. What I'll do is I'll play the trailer for the film for you. And I should also make mention, sorry, at the end of this episode, there's going to be an interview that I did a couple of weeks ago with a fascinating fellow. His name's Ian McFarlane. Now, if you're a lover of Australian rock music and you listen to Triple R, then you'd know who Ian McFarlane is. He went and wrote a great book quite a few years back called The Encyclopedia of Australian Rock and Pop. And he's actually got a new edition of the book coming out, I think, in January or February of 2017. So that's very, very exciting. The man knows his stuff. So I did an interview with him. I reached out to him to see if he knew anything about the film as well as the music, and indeed he did. So there's some behind-the-scenes sort of things that he knew about the film, about Chris Lafane, the director, and about the main uh, musicians who contributed music to the film, Ross Wilson and Joe Giuseppe and the Falcons. So we'll be playing that at the end of our official chat, so stay tuned for that. But uh, we'll go in now quickly to play... Uh, a couple of trailers for you, and then we'll be back to talk about Oz or 20th Century Oz, whichever way you prefer to call it. We'll be back shortly. You're listening to See Here. If you dig rock and roll, you're going to dig Oz. Bloody well spill any or have you? The great Australian rock movie has arrived.
And we're back from break. Morris here, Mike White over there, Tim Merrill somewhere different over there, and Bernard Stickwell somewhere different yet again over there. Welcome to uh, the program, and we're here to discuss a film from 1976 made in and around my hometown of Melbourne called 20th Century Oz. Now, we've had you previously on the show, Mike, and when I asked you what film you'd like to discuss with us, and you sent me a list of about 20 films that you thought any of these would be great. Uh, at the time, we discussed Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, and we had a lot of fun with that, but one of the films in your list was really a bit of a list of shamer for me, you know, 20th century I was, and I thought, right, okay, now's the time to do it because we wanted you back. So, I'll just quickly read a praise of the film. This is off Wikipedia. Here's the plot summary. Dorothy, played by Joy Dunstan, is a 16-year-old groupie with a rock band, Wally and the Falcons. Suddenly the van is in a road accident and she hits her head. She wakes up in a fantasy world as gritty and realistic as the one she came from and learns she killed a young thug in the process. A gay clothier, Glyn the Good Fairy, Robin Lanzi, gives her a pair of red shoes as a reward to help her see the last concert of The Wizard, played by Graham Matters, an androgynous glam rock singer. She is pursued by the thug's brother, Ned Kelly, we'll have to speak about that, who attempts to rape her on several occasions. <laughs> she also meets a dumb surfer blonde, played by Bruce Spence, a heartless mechanic, Greaseball, played by Michael Carmen, and a cowardly biker killer, played by Gary Waddell. Okay, Mike, I'm going to take a leaf out of the projection booth and ask you, when did you first see Oz, and what did you think? I first saw this one, I want to say early 2000s. I don't even remember where I first read about it. It might have been in Shock Cinema and tracked down a copy of it and I really enjoyed it. I, I was uh, pleasantly taken aback, though I was kind of confused by some of the terminology in the film. <laughs> things like surfy and bikey and trucky and all these kind of things. I'm just like, what the hell is going on here with this stuff? I mean, over here in the in the US, the IE thing seems to kind of demonetize things. So like groupie seems to be okay to call a woman a groupie, but you would tend to say, like, surfer or biker or, I don't know, trucker. So, yeah, I was kind of like, what the hell is going on with these surfy, bikey, trucky kind of things? But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. I, I, I thought it was a, a really good thing. I really like the uh, living in the land of Oz thing, especially talking about genocide. You know, the, it's probably one of the best songs about genocide that there's ever been. So I'll be honest, Morris, this is the first time viewing for me, and shamefully, I'd not even heard of this before. I watched it yesterday. I'm not entirely sure it's successful, but we'll get to that. But certainly as a, a period thing and as a kind of portrait of the 70s in Australia, I think it's very interesting. I love all the kind of the Australian slang and that kind of thing, because here in the UK, we've always had a lot of sort of imported Australian TV shows. I can remember watching the Paul Hogan show in the late 70s and early 80s. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, we've had all the kind of soap operas like Neighbours and home and away and things like that so I, I was actually quite familiar with a lot of the slang and people telling other people to rack off mate and all this kind of thing <laughs> I, I totally get that and so seeing that in that kind of glammy 70s kind of glory was very interesting yeah as, as I say I, I'm not sure how convinced I was by the film uh, as a whole but we'll get to that but certainly uh, it was an enjoyable experience watching it I had never seen this film before I'm the same as Bernie but I remember now now having a bit of a, a little bit of a, a flashback throwback to um, I think it was like the mid to late 80s or early 90s when we used to the bootleg circuit of swapping VHS and you'd get compilation tapes with trailers and things like that and I remember seeing the trailer for this with alongside what was it Jimmy Blacksmith and uh, mm. the cars the cars today Paris 
and I remember seeing distinctly because they were there's a whole chain of trailers on the VHS that were like musical knockoffs because of course they had the one that we previously covered the Apple and then they showed the Wiz and then they showed Oz and I'd forgotten completely about it until yesterday when I actually sat down to watch the trailer and then I and then I sat down and watched the film and I was like wait a minute oh this is that thing oh man I remember this you know yeah it, it, you know for you it must be really a nostalgic trip to look at you know your history of your hometown but I mean you know for some of us you know it, it, you know there's some things stand out like a sore thumb and other things don't I'm along with Bernie though like I mean, I'm familiar with some of the lingo and uh, some of the boganisms <laughs> that were you know that were prevalent you have to admit there's more than a couple of bogans in this film I'm not actually sure whether they were called bogans back in the day this was PB pre-bogan right but it was still uh, <laughs> and Mike if you're not familiar bogans are kind of like the Australian rednecks oh okay thank you yeah so but yeah bogans are just kind of like the um, what would you say Bernie they're almost like chavs uh, yeah, yeah, I guess that's the UK, the current sort of vernacular for the UK version of that would be Chavs or Townies or right. Trevors, we used to call them as well. <laughs> right. Trevs. So, yeah. With my own history, I'd, I'd long been aware of the film, probably since the mid to late 70s. I remember seeing the soundtrack album at my local record store called Hitman Records, and I, I don't remember seeing anything about the film being advertised in the newspapers. I, I'm sure it was around during the VHS days, but... But until I saw it available at my, unfortunately, now deceased DVD library, I didn't even know that it had a DVD release. So thank goodness for the fine folk at Umbrella DVDs and Blu-rays for you know, releasing a whole lot of stuff that they're putting under the Ozploitation label. This film, watching this uh, like in the last couple of weeks, it seems to sort of like have a strange place in the history of Australian cinema for the period. It was obviously you know, part of that renaissance of Australian cinema. And you know, Mike, a few months ago, we discussed Wake and Fright on the projection booth and we spoke that a big deal about a lot of those early Australian films of the 70s were the themes of machismo and so there was either you know films about macho guys like Last of the Knucklemen or Wake and Fright or Sunday Too Far Away or there were you know comedic films about the counterculture or sex comedies like Stork or Alvin Purple or there were the period pieces like what you mentioned before Tim about uh, the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith and things right. like uh, Caddy so this sort of has a strange place. It still has, there are some themes of machismo in this, but not as the main focus, because this is essentially Dorothy's story. And I like the fact that it's decided to take you know, a well-known story and give it a very Australian slant. I mean, I know that there was the musical in the States, The Wiz, that you already mentioned, Tim. That tends to take sort of, you know, just maybe more up-tempo songs, and, but still set it with, you know, a tin man and a, and a you know, lion and the Scarecrow. This, they decide to take different characters and we'll, we'll make other comparisons as well. When Dorothy goes into a fantasy world, I'm not sure if it's because they had a lack of budget or, or not a great script writer at the time, but the world that she enters in her dream is not really a fantasy. You know, the ha having a bikey or biker, whatever your chosen vernacular is, and having a, a car mechanic and having the surfy surfer is really not much of a fantasy world. She's not going to any 
a yellow brick road and going to see a concert is not the same as finding a wizard who is going to save her but you know, once again it's it's her dreams I don't know whether they were budgetary restraints and I do know that there were budgetary problems with the film or they just decided to sort of say well let's make this authentic let's make this a film that an Australian audience will identify with and certainly in the 70s it seems that Australian filmmakers were catering more to a local audience rather than to an international audience so that was certainly something even though it didn't really do very successfully from what I've gathered it was still something that would have been aimed that an Australian audience would have identified with an Australian teenage audience hey you fill it up and don't bloody well spill any I'll have you where's the box shithead oh what are you staring at two features Morris, do you remember at the time that was it a, a big release? Was it successful, popular, or no? I, I, as I said, I have no recollection of seeing this advertised in the newspapers. And from wow. you know, what what I read up, I've got a book that Terry Frost went and gave to me called "The Last New Wave," written by Australia's most famous film critic David Stratton, but written before he became a very famous film critic. And it's all about Australian cinema of the 70s. He wrote and released it in 1980, so it was just at the tail end of the Renaissance. And according to what it says in the book, it says. It really didn't last very long in the Australian cinema, and really, I, I guess it's got that film's got something in common with modern Australian cinema. You know, not many people are actually going to see it in this country, which really pisses me off. But that's another story. But for some reason, it, it actually made apparently a modest success in America. I mean, I guess in a cult sort of way, you know, possibly following mm -hmm. on the heels of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and what else would it? Uh, well, I guess you had that sort of established midnight movie type circuit during that period, didn't you? Or it was sort of coalescing then, so it. I guess it would fit in with that kind of thing. Right, right. So it, apparently it never got a cinema release in Britain. I was going to say one thing that you were talking about, Morris, how you were saying about how the, it really is in a fantasy land that she falls into. And the one thing that made me laugh about it was when she comes across the fairy godmother. Um, I don't know, I'm just... Just looking? Very well. I suppose you know you caused quite a stir around here. Me? Yes. Since you killed the town hood. Because it reminded me completely of just a while ago, I was watching a compilation of movie trailers again, and there was, uh, from the 70s, there was this film, The Erotic Adventures of Cinderella, and they had uh, Cy Richardson from Repo Man and from Straight to Hell, and he's been in a number of films, and he comes on and he's just like, I'm your fairy godmother, you know? <laughs> and it was hilarious how he just he just comes out as the total queen, right? And it was awesome. And I really, you know, I thought that was really funny in this. How Dorothy just shows up at the fashion store and the guy comes out, and then um, how uh, the uh, the trucky dude comes in and he's just like, you know, shut up, fairy, I'm after her, you know. Can I help you? Shut up, fairy, it's her I want. You'll leave her alone if you know what's good for you. You kill me, brother, I'm gonna make you real sorry you did that. But I didn't kill anyone. He's dead, and I'm gonna get you for it. The fairy is the one who's basically the black sheep of the town. And he's just like, everybody else is all zombies. I'm the only one who really knows what's going on. And you, you just did the best thing, you know, that anybody could do is you just wiped out the main tough, you know, and then you're like, that's it. But but you don't see how she does it. Was it is it with the van that she's supposed to have the run over? The van falls on him, like, the van falls okay. on him, like, you know, the house falls on the uh, the witch in I see, uh, I see, Wizard I see. of Oz. 
because you just see his legs sticking out from under the van, don't you? Mm-hmm. You know, like, <laughs> all he does is <laughs> stare at her menacingly. That's his mo. Yeah. That's right. That's actually for me. I thought one of the weak points about the film, and I'm, I'm going to come out, lay my cards on the table. I really, really enjoyed it, and it could be argued whether it's you know sentimental or nostalgic. Looking at my hometown, but. I, I did think that one weakness... Oh, sorry, I got a couple of weaknesses, but one of them was that he doesn't really seem to be a very effective replacement for the Wicked Witch. I mean, if you watch the original Wizard of Oz or read the Frank Bourne book, she's always coming in there and threatening Dorothy. Yeah. And what does he do? He comes in, twirls his moustache, and as soon as you know someone who's you know pretty harmless, like the Bruce Spence surfy character, comes in, he thinks, damn, she's got a protector. I can't really do anything. When really, he'd be right. pretty much a pushover. He's almost like see- a snively whiplash kind of guy right you know right. like he's, yeah he's just that yeah not really given enough to do is he to actually establish no. that he is yeah. as, as evil no. as uh, you know you would hope so how far is it to the city from here oh i don't know thought i got there much myself cities are shit holes i reckon yeah but you never get big stars like the wizard out here in country towns do you pretty rapping the wizard are you I want to ask Mike a question. Australia and England certainly had a tradition, I think, back in the 70s on TV shows and in films of having characters very effeminate, like Glyn, the good fairy godmother. And, you know, really, that character would never be allowed in a film in 2016. Now, I'm I'm sure there's a ton of American films that have similar characters, but the only one that's coming to my mind right now is Freebie and the Bean. Any other (laughs) films with characters that remind you... like a Glenn the Good Fairy in this. Well, if anything, I was thinking of Bewitched, the TV show, and just the Paul Lynn character on there. While we're on the subject, this place smells like a... I think. There's that one character in Revenge of the Nerds that's very, very effeminate. I think that was a little later, though, Tim. It, it was a real kind of 70s thing in the UK and Australia. So. Mm-hmm. Sure. And then Boys in the Band. No, I... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, nothing is really coming to mind. I mean, really, uh, I was thinking more more television than, than movies, really. We've already gone and mentioned a few minutes ago about this film. It sits in an unusual place between those early macho films and the period pieces and the like. I was watching this and I thought, you know, for better or for worse, I thought of a couple of Wake and Fright comparisons. Yeah. Both films are about a main character who make a journey, even if one's doing it in a literal dream and the other one is doing it in a figurative nightmare and the characters that they meet along the way both characters are majorly flawed and you know unlike in the wizard of oz dorothy in here she's got a few issues selfishness narcissism being one of them i think yet you still see want to see them come out okay by the end they've learned something about themselves and you guess that their behavior will change once the curtain closes really are there any other films that you'd sort of say you know besides the obvious wizard of oz thing that you think that this is a good comparison to it. So not, not necessarily taking into account the, the Australianisms, the Australian vernacular, things that were you know, particularly to the local culture, but any other sort of road films that you can think of that have characters like this? Yeah, like the Walter Hill film, Crossroads with oh, Ralph the, the, Macchio. The one, the one that Ry Cooda wrote the score for. Right, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. where he, you know, he's, he's on his way, because you know, and that's the same with the deal with the devil and Robert Johnson, there's that, 
And then I was thinking also of that film from the 80s, uh, Times Square, with uh, Trini Alvarado, you know, about the kids that go into the town and they're looking for excitement and it doesn't turn out exactly what they how they want it to be. And there's a number of road films like this. I mean, to stretch it a little bit, but oh, I'm trying to think, I'm having a brain fart, Mike. What was that apocalyptic film there where the guy was Buddy Holly? Oh, Six String Samurai. Oh, Six String Samurai, yeah. Right, where, you know, where they're on the road and they're basically off to a goal and they're trying to hit Vegas because there's a competition of who's going to become the king, you know? And they have to go through all these characters and this whole cast and crew along the way. And, uh, you know, there, there's been a number of films. I, you know, I guess, uh, I mean, road movies in general, they, they do tend to be about the, the, the changes that happen to the characters during that journey, don't they? And it's about mm-hmm. people maybe finding themselves or finding each other or, you know, being changed in some way by what occurs to them. So I think that's kind of a staple of, of the genre. I guess. Sure. It's the hero's journey kind of thing. So, so many of yeah. these films, I mean, even as we're talking, I'm like, well, to go back to Star Wars, I mean, really, that that's just basically a, a Wizard of Oz kind of yeah, tale yeah. as well. Sure. And we even covered the- one, Alice's Restaurant. I would say that that's yeah, almost yeah. like a road movie, too. Yeah. I'm going to uh, re-watch in the next couple of weeks. I'm expecting a copy of a Bruce McDonald film, Highway 61. Highway 61. 61. There you there go. go. Oh, yep. yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love the concept of that, uh, playing trumpet in a Backman-Turner overdrive tribute. Band. Was that a big thing in Canada, Tim? Backman over, Turner Overdrive tribute bands? No, there wasn't a lot of tribute bands, but I, I grew up with Backman Turner Overweight in the 70s. Yep. Yeah, they were... <laughs> Yeah, um, AM radio man for life. Yeah, can I can I share an embarrassing Backman Turner Overdrive story with? You? Please, sure. Go ahead, Bernie. Say this out loud, but um, they were the, like, their big hit. In, yeah, their big hit in the UK was "You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet," wasn't it? That was yeah. Backman Turner Drive. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, yeah. I, I remember uh, in infant school, I would have been about well, maybe it was junior school. I was about seven years old, something like that. And I remember uh, to a girl, I, I sang to her, "You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet," and then unzip my flies. <laughs> I got in real trouble. <laughs> so he threw me out of classroom. I had to the headmaster. Way to, way to go, Bernie. Rock and roll. <laughs> Never did it since. Never did it since, yeah. Come on, man. We need an encore presentation. <laughs> That's the most rock and roll thing I think I've ever heard. Thank you. Gigi Allen's got nothing on you, man. Come on. It's <laughs> <laughs> a fine line between uh, rock and roll and sociopath, I suppose, isn't it? So. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Don't you ever get scared of anything? Oh, yeah. Like what? Well, I guess I'm scared of sharks. But if they want you, I'll get you anyway. I suppose there's no sense getting hung up about it. I was recently watching a film that I'd gone and ordered from Criterion Sale specifically because you had recommended it, Mike. That's Valerie and Her Week of Wonders. And watching that, I mean, regardless of stylistic differences, I immediately thought of The Wizard of Oz. Both Dorothy and Valerie are young girls coming of age, having to take responsibility for their own lives and make decisions about where they're headed. And both have an article of clothing, be it Dorothy 
these shoes or Valerie's earrings that is used to protect them. And I think that's actually sort of one thing, a problem with this film not making her shoes fantastical. I would have liked yeah. to have been able to see something that protected her. It was just something that they had to yeah. check off the list. She really has no problem just kind of taking those shoes off here and there. I mean, there's like the one where like, take off your shoes. No, I won't. And that's about it. <laughs> right. Which is funny, when, when she took her shoes off on the beach, I was kind of thinking, oh, something bad's going to happen now. She's taking her shoes off, but right. they don't make anything of it. And when the sort of fairy godmother shows up and takes her away, she's just happily walking up the beach carrying her shoes. And I thought they would, you know, something was, was going to occur there. But obviously not, like you say, maybe they were just checking uh, things off the list. Now, one thing I wanted to say, like to go back to a little bit of the beginning of the film, Morris, you were saying there were some comparisons to Wake and Fright. Mm. And one thing that I kind of got a total, just, I don't know if it's just me or what, but I mean, the beginning of the film when Dorothy and her friend go to the local community center to see Wally and the Falk, and they walk in the door, and the minute they walk in that door, it's almost like they're just like two pork chops that just got dropped into a wolf sanctuary. Right. <laughs> Everybody's just like eyeing them up and down, you know, and like even even the, the trucky guy is just like, come here, you know, and they're just like, no, no, no. And, you know, we should go check with the band, you know, and then even right up to the end when she grabs the mic stand and he's just like, drop that bloody thing. What are you doing? You know, and then Wally's basically like, you coming or not? You know, get in the van, like get to get out of here. You know, you're going to get eaten up. And I just thought that was just so skeezy to me. I don't know. For some reason, it just felt like almost like that. It, it just felt like it was going to turn out like that Jodie Foster film. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting you say that, Tim, because I think one of my issues with the film is that it is quite tonally uneven. It seems to be aimed at kind of younger people in a way, and there's a sense of sort of fun and excitement throughout it. But then you get the moment towards the end where the trucker guy finally gets her and he takes mm-hmm. her back to his like sleazy rape pad, basically, with like pictures of naked women tacked all over the walls and he just kind of orders her to strip and, and she does and she stood there in her shoes and it's like man this is going to get really uh, gnarly now and it kind of doesn't and it goes back to the more sort of fun and frivolous kind of thing and right. there's a few instances throughout it like that which just made it feel a little uneven to me I don't know what you guys think I'm just sort of thinking now that it was possibly taking its cue from what was happening on Australian television back at the time so there were a couple of very sexy and sleazy TV shows that were on every week and people my age will remember one called num- <laughs> number 96 and the other one called the box and they were but number 96 in particular so it, it was about you know the lives of a group of people i mean i guess it's the only thing it's got in common with neighbors it's going to be about a group of people but they were living in one big you know, uh, suburban flat in in sydney it was um, i think the first tv show that had nudity of any kind on it it, it had uh, the sleazy element and there were violent characters and uh, a lot of sex and it was the first show on Australian TV to do that and I sort of suspect that that whole thing of you know Dorothy stripping and then kicking the, the bikey slash yeah, the yeah. wicked witch in, in the balls I guess in a way it was possibly taking its cue not necessarily directly from those TV shows but saying alright oh, they did it it's okay for us to do it yeah don't come near me I'll scream well doing no good you buggers again ah! 
yeah, that was kind of the prevailing sort of feel of the era. Those things did start to creep in. Sort of films in general, I guess, not just in Australia, but, you know, the UK's like that as well. Mm. But I think just, yeah, it's, like I say, it feels like a real flip from the kind of feel of a lot of the rest of the film. The way there's an awful lot of kind of swearing in it as well. Again, which I don't have an issue with, but it just yeah. feels maybe a little out of place. There's a lot of shits and a lot of... Well, Dorothy's supposed to be innocent. And, so and she's supposed to be uh, above all where everything else is good or bad. She's supposed to basically be pristine. You know, she's supposed to be, you know, the symbol of purity. And uh, But uh, like you say, she gets naked and, you know, and all the, you know, and she's telling people to fuck off and, you know, things like that. Weed I mean, with biker dudes, yeah. yeah. Right. But I never saw Dorothy as a symbol of purity in this film. You're still thinking too much of Judy Garland in, in The Wizard no, of Oz. No, but I'm just, say, I'm just saying in most in most versions of The Wizard of Oz, Morris, she's supposed to be the symbol. I'm saying she's the metaphoric symbol of purity. She always is. Right. So that's why in this film it's surprising, you know, that she's just so loose like it. You know, I mean, it, it really veers away from, you know, what Dorothy is supposed to be, the characterization of Dorothy. That's all. Yeah. When the doorman asks her for, you know, like, oh, we'll have a date later on tonight. I was like, shouldn't he be asking for a blowjob right now? Because there's no guarantee that she's going to come yeah. back later on. Right. And she doesn't. So, no. Yeah. So I was going to say, Mike's a man with his priorities uh, intact. Now, so. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever, you know, people are shooting films that are geared towards teenagers, you know, adolescents, the younger set, they always basically try to make it hip. And they always say that they have, they have their finger on the pulse of youth and they know what's going on. But it always seems to me that every film that I've ever seen where they try to capture, you know, that the essence of teenage angst, it just always seems so lame. It's just nobody ever seems to really get it right aside from people like Penelope Spheris, you know, that's doing documentary style. I mean, like Verte. But I mean, when you're actually making a motion picture, to me, it never seems like they can ever get it right. It just seems like the people that are putting it together either a generation later or half a generation ahead or I, I don't know. It just seems to me that it always... I, think, um, they, I don't know what it is. No, I, I think it's the fact that the people making the films, uh, you know, you're making a film about teenagers but you're probably going to be in your 30s at least by this point and also a lot of the time particularly again with older films like you say the, the casting you don't get 16 year olds cast as 16 year olds you get no. 28 year olds cast as 16 year olds right. kids rocking out to a guy that looks like Carmen Miranda right <laughs> <laughs> I well, mean, I don't know. It was but, the 70s, man. That kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, but then again, Peter Gabriel too, right? I mean, sure. The Wizards Band, finally, you know, when they when she gets there, to me, it looked like Carmen Miranda back by Devo. But so it, it, it's my language. That sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing what they were going for would have been uh, the, the Ziggy Stardust thing, but it was already three right, years Sure, away. sure. Of course. Yeah. Of course. It did very much feel like a sort of low-rent, sort of Bowie kind of thing, didn't it? I mean, just look at the uh, video poster artwork as well, that kind of heavily made up, glam rocky looking wizard. I was going to say Tim, basically in answer to what you said that was actually a point that was heavily in my mind, that you know, a lot of supposed youth culture films they don't get it because it's their perception of what the kid 
kids are going to like. Right. And right. regardless of whether the film works or not, I don't think I'd make that accusation of this film if for no other reason because Chris Lafane, who it'll get discussed a bit more in the interview that you hear later on in the show with Ian McFarlane. Chris Lafane was a bass player as well as a filmmaker. He was in a band called Campact at the tail end of the 60s. And really up until I came to watch this film and I sort of did a little bit of research, I'd never heard of Campact. They had a few, maybe five or six singles. And the ones that I've heard, they're all fantastic. You know, really great late 60s pop. But he actually had his bona fides as a musician. He became a film clip maker when no one else in Australia was actually doing that at the time. He made film clips for the band Spectrum for their big song of the era called I'll Be Gone. Someday. made a film clip for Daddy Cool for what really should be our national anthem, the song Eagle Rock. So he had an understanding, you know, regardless of whether you think he was successful or not as a film, but I don't think he was trying to second guess what the kids were going to like because, you know, he was working as a musician and he was living within it rather than being some suit who said, all right, I think I'll just put this together because I gather that the right. kids are digging this sort of music. Considering, like you were saying earlier, that the majority of the film really didn't have a lot of visual panache, you know, it, it was just straight up, you know, she goes from reality into reality. I'm, I'm sure that Chris must have wanted to have some type of, you know, really eye-catching or elaborate finale with the Wizards band. I mean, like, he's just like, okay, you know, everything's been pretty much run-of-the-mill until this. And then he brings it out, and it was just like, wow. You know, like, it's a spectacle. And I think that if everything else prior to that had been spectacle after spectacle after spectacle, like the Wizard of Oz, then, you know, the finale with the Wizards band, and probably wouldn't have been so, uh, wouldn't have stood out as much, I think. Right. Just 
I want to talk a little bit about the characters, uh, or at least a couple of the characters. Now, Mike, you recently had your dream interview with Bruce Spence. Mm-hmm. You're talking about for a future episode of the Projection Booth, discussing the cars that ate Paris, but you asked him some questions about some other films, and you asked him about his memories of Oz. One of the more unusual films that, at least to me, that you were in that was happening at this time was 20th Century Oz. What was that experience like for you? God, I didn't, I didn't know that got that far. Oh yeah, um, I have the soundtrack on vinyl. Oh God, I didn't. Well, I got to confess, I didn't enjoy shooting that film at all. Um, no, no, uh, mainly because the, the director, filmmaker, he, uh, Chris Lafayne. Hadn't, so it was his first film. I think. I think at that time, as I said, that was another first. Someone else's first. You know, you're always in those days. You were working with someone who was their first feature film, and so everyone mm-hmm. everyone was learning, and so was Chris. And Chris had written the script, and I, there was there were elements in the script that I just wasn't happy with that I wanted to change. And essentially, I just wanted to make the, lang- the 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 dialogue a little bit more natural at times, and because. Um, I'd spent a lot of time around kind of people like the person I was playing. I just sort of wanted to expand. And and I think he was a little kind of uh, insecure about his, what he was doing. And he, I think he felt he didn't want, he didn't, he wanted to keep control over everything. And so I, I couldn't even change a syllable at times. Um, and, oh, wow. and, and so I just felt really constrained. And so I, really at times didn't enjoy it at all but um but i understand once again that was such a wacky film that that ended up you know that sort of had something going for it yeah he, uh, he had a, he had a lot of experience i think he still does but uh he had a lot of experience in making uh, rock clips at the time and that was his background and he had a musical background yeah okay yeah i can see that coming through yeah. especially in the final yeah yeah bit, yeah, yeah. Well, and Ross Wilson is still around. The fellow that wrote, wrote the music, he's still around. He he, he, he was he's an excellent um, songwriter, actually. But anyway, that's another story. Yeah. From what I remember of his memories, they weren't necessarily that pleasant. He didn't seem to want to talk about that too much. The whole nature of the scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz is, you know, he thinks he's not smart, but he really is. But the surfy here, he really is pretty dumb until he sort of has to come up with an idea, and it sort of seems a little unnatural. But for most of it, he can't even hold a car jack up the right way, can't even work out how to uplift the car. Right. So how do you feel this stands amongst Spencer's repertoire? Well, for me, I was just glad that he had so much screen time. I mean, I was able to see him right away when we go in and, and see the band playing. I was just like, all right, this is great. And if anything, when we see the band playing, I was just like, well, who's the drummer? Because I don't remember any close-ups of the drummer <laughs> whatsoever. I, so I'm just like, well, well, who is the drummer? And then when he's introduced later on, there's a character later on. I was just like, I guess that's the drummer. <laughs> but there were some awkward moments of of, uh, direction when it came to this and I think that was probably Spence's problem is that this was a first feature film for Chris and I don't you know and of, of course he didn't do any more after this and uh, I think that he was a little bit out of his own depth right. I think he continued on to do uh, video clips for Australian rock acts I think I read somewhere like you know some of our iconic bands at the time like Australian Crawl and Cold Chisel so he did continue to work as a video clip maker and if for nothing else he should be seen as a pioneer because you know he made those clips I mentioned before 
before when no one else was doing them in Australia. So oh yeah, to be doing music videos in the mid seventies. I mean, before well, we're, we're, I don't. Talk, we're talking like you know sixty eight, sixty nine. Oh jeez, yeah. yeah. So yeah, no, yeah. that's that's really something. Yeah, way ahead of the curve. Yeah. Can, can I but as him? far as oh, I mean, I was glad to see how much Bruce Spence is in this film. Of course, I don't think that he has. You know, well, obviously, he's not the title role. This isn't this isn't Stork, but he um, he doesn't have enough to work with. It feels like to me. You know, he just he kind of goes by the wayside a lot of times, and that's one of the problems that I have with the video or with the movie is just that they uh, they will go go go, and then they stop, and they all just kind of stand around and talk for a little while. And yeah. those moments yeah. of them talking for a little while, I'm just like, are they going to do something pretty soon? Because this is getting really kind of boring. And especially because the conversations are almost all the same. Like, is she Yoshila? Is that? And it's just like, oh, God, enough. <laughs> I think some of the uh, the editing could have been really tightened up on this because there are scenes like you, you were saying, Mike, where they have these long conversations. But then you'll literally get like 30 seconds of two people looking under the hood of uh, the Surfies van, you know, and nothing, nothing else going on. And it's like, yeah, we know that. Let's just tighten it up and move on a little bit, you know. They were all learning, I guess, at the time. <clears throat> that, that whole. But yeah, I mean, of, of course, this is all us talking about this now, and of course, they were feeling their right. way and, and learning at the time, so it, it's forgivable. But yeah, looking at it with a critical eye now, mm. I guess it's a lot easier to spot the uh, the things that could have been done better. Uh, the other uh, one, other character I sort of want to bring up out of the main quartet is um, uh, Gary Waddell's uh, bikey slash lion. Uh, he plays the cowardly bikey. Um, in, in a way, he's sort of like the loudmouth archetype Australian you might recognise in other films of the period. You know, the broad accent, the pushing of the macho image, the threats. Uh, and, and within, you know, the context of exaggerated Australianness, I think, you know, his character really works for that period. I don't know whether it works as well today, but um, certainly I think, oh yeah, I recognise that character from other Australian movies or TV shows of the period. Now, I was trying to look up to see what else he'd done, and there's a film there that I'm pretty convinced we're going to cover at some stage on the podcast but I've not watched it's called Pure Shit um, or in some circles oh, in, yeah. in polite circles called Pure S directed <laughs> by a fellow called Bert Delling is it a film that you've seen Mike? No, no, it's just a great title. Right. It's. I mean, I think it's supposed to be set around the drug culture in suburban Melbourne. Pretty much, I guess, the same type of thing that uh, the film Dogs in Space deals with, but a lot more about the drug culture rather than the music culture. But uh, anyway, I'll, I'll wait and see whether it qualifies as a uh, see here film. It is certainly something that I'd like to check out, but I think Umbrella have deleted that from their catalogue, but they're always doing re-releases. Excuse me, dear. Is there a loo about here anywhere? Nah, nah. You'll have to do it in the sand, lot. Oh. Just like a pussycat. There's one line that we get from the cowardly lion or the cowardly bikey that really works for me. It sort of demonstrates everything that his character's about. Remember where he and Dorothy are lying on the beach. She's fallen asleep. He's fallen asleep. And the surfy discovers them. G'day. Oh, sorry. I, I didn't realise you were asleep. Jesus, you scared the shit out of me. Did I? Not really. 
that whole macho image. I made a mistake. I've let something off. I just thought it was, it was a really well executed moment. The bit when Dorothy off and just Ike Turner's, and I thought that was you know, in the bathroom, you know, and yeah, she yeah. just lets him have it. Mm. And then she's like, oh, what did you do that for? And she's like, well, what do you what do you mean? You, oh, that really hurt. Come on, man. You know, get a hold of yourself. Yeah, I, I thought that was pretty funny. Locations. Now, one thing that I really like about the film, and once again, it's me showing my bias, but certainly once they hit Melbourne, there's a lot of places that I saw which I remembered from my youth, some places which are no longer there. But certainly once they get to St Kilda and they show the Palais Theatre and Luna Park, it really shows off Melbourne as a character in the story. Jesus, she's okay. She all thought she was going there for a while. Hey, remember us? Hey, what was you raving on about just before you came to? Something about fame and fortune. Fame and fortune fuck you up. Just briefly, before we wrap up, just want to talk a little bit about the songs in the film. Now, I don't know whether you guys had a chance to hear the, the soundtrack or not, because I mean, there's songs which are played in the background of the film that you may not necessarily pay that much attention to. As Ian McFarlane will say later in the interview that I play, that the two main acts, so Ross Wilson was in between Daddy Cool and forming the first incarnation of his band Mondo Rock, when he recorded this soundtrack, and in particular, out of his songs you've already mentioned, Mike, uh, the title song living in the land of Oz which really has nothing to do with the story of the film but it's an absolutely fantastic song and it came about at a time like before anyone was talking about white Australia versus indigenous Australia it wasn't really a main issue it wasn't a headline issue and he was doing it long before bands like you know more political bands like uh, Midnight Oil or Red Gum or Goanna were doing it Ian has some interesting things to say about that and the other main band was Jojo Zepp and the Falcons and I'm wondering where they Billy, took their name Billy the Falcons yeah right. But Jojo Zepp and the Falcons, they started out at the... This is their first recording. Their songs that appear in this film were the first time that they'd been recorded. And uh, Joe Camilleri is you know, considered like a, you know, a deity in the music world here. He's made, he's recorded like in various bands, something like 50 albums over his entire career, a hardworking musician. Jojo Zepp started out as sort of like a, a bluesy R&B jump type of band before sort of morphing into more reggae rock. But this is certainly part of their more uh, bluesy rock type of thing, which is it's still very popular as part of the pub rock scene of uh, the mid to late 70s. Anyway, keep listening. We're going to wrap this up over the next couple of minutes and uh, you'll hear more about the music and its place in the film with my interview with Ian McFarlane. So let's do a little bit of a, a summing up. So I guess that all you guys, you had your reservations about certain things about the film, but you know, taking into account its place and Chris Levine was still a developing director. Overall, were you entertained? I'll start with you, Mike. Well, I was more entertained the first time that I saw this watching it again yesterday it was like okay let's move the story along this is taking a long time but and the other thing that got me was just that you were talking about the music is really the background of so much of this it really doesn't feel that much like a musical because it's like as they're doing right, stuff yeah. there's songs playing rather than let's take a break and now play a song and then we'll go back into the action kind of thing but it was really much more like you know almost like it was on the radio kind of thing and then when we got to the wizard at the end and that didn't even feel like, you know, okay, now we're going to have a full song. It felt more like we were kind of walking into the middle of something. Right. So I, I, I felt a, a little cheated by that. But I still find a lot of stuff to be enjoyable about the film. I, I didn't like it as much as the first time. So I would say don't come back for repeated viewings. I, uh, I, I kind of concur with what Mike was saying about 
how other interpretations of the Wizard of Oz have been, you know, musical. They've had, they've had people singing. And I'm sure that a lot of this is because of the limitations of budget and, and the actors not probably being musically inclined either. That, that's completely fine. But I, I really thought, too, no spoiler, but I, I really thought that in the end, the band should have been ACDC instead of uh, Wally and the Falcons. Because, you know, when they're like, well, is she awake? Is she awake? What's she saying? It's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. <laughs> You know, like that, that's exactly what she was saying. And I mean, like, you know, you're going to yeah, get ripped yeah. off. You're going to get screwed. Like, you know, it's not what you think it is. So I, I, I thought that was kind of funny. With all the other interpretations of The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy always says, you know, I want to go home. I want to go home. I want to go home. And this one, she's just like, I want to just go to a gig and get laid. You know, <laughs> like, like, that's it. There's no place like home is very different from fame fucks you up. But it is a message. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. she takes away from this. Right. Yeah. She goes looking for some type of thing and it's not what, what she finds. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the film had its issues, I think, and it wasn't entirely successful. What I did really like about it was the, just uh, the Australian-ness of it. And, I mean, I'm a sucker for anything from that kind of 70s period anyway, wherever it's from. But there's a certain something about Australian movies from that period that I was going to mention this earlier. But there, there are certain scenes in this when she first arrives in Oz, as it were, and she's wandering through the uh, the countryside and it's got that kind of creepy almost alien feel that the Australian countryside has in right. things like Long Weekend and the cars that ate Paris and those kind of things you know it's a kind of strangely otherworldly thing I always find mm. and it sort of taps into that really well some of the songs uh, I enjoyed thought were great so yeah and, and but you know I've got to agree with uh, Tim and Mike it's not entirely successful but I guess worth a look so from my own perspective and yes I'll fully acknowledge I am biased I, I really loved it I mean yeah I, I'll acknowledge it's not necessarily classic of cinema or you know not even a classic of Australian cinema but I do think that it's a shame that to a large extent this film has been forgotten you know, regardless of whether they're accessible people do remember and talk about films like The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith and Eliza Fraser for instance or, or Alvin Purple and you know all within you know their certain genres you know all for good reason and I don't know I just think I wish that more people knew and could see this and you know, maybe if you go in with modest expectations you'll enjoy it but I certainly really was very entertained and it wasn't just a nostalgic thing of being able to see Dorothy Walker past an ex-porno cinema in Manchester Lane or her be able to walk into the Palais Theatre. And actually, just, yeah, one thing I wanted to make mention, especially to you, Mike, was you've seen Hercules Returns, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The theatre that they walk into the foyer of the Palais Theatre, which is still around, and I've already been to a couple of concerts this year there. That, that's still there. And that the same theatre that they film in for Hercules Returns. So Bruce Spence has a history with that theatre. Nice. Um, doesn't the, the cowardly bikey, isn't he in that as well in what in the band in Hercules Returns I don't know I don't I don't think so no? okay. I'm struggling I, I'm, look I'm not 100% sure we'd have to look that up on IMDB it's okay been, but I, mean, I think real, apart from the like the introduction and you know bit at the end it's mostly about that voiceover for the for the old Hercules film and we'll discuss some other time about actually that was a live show which they just decided to permanently put into a film with that framework at the beginning of the end one thing I wanted to bring up you, you mentioned that you were going to talk about Ned Kelly the uh, the truckie right 
Right. I will tell you one thing that I found interesting in my research. I don't know what his supposed real name is, but in fact, he was a roadie for ACDC, the old days of Bon Scott. And if you keep listening, I won't spoil the thunder, but there is an ACDC connection in the film that Ian McFarlane mentions in the interview. So keep listening. That'll come up. Uh, we'll start that in a couple of minutes. But look, basically, this is a film that I have a lot of fondness for. I own the DVD. I will watch it again. I'm really, really happy I have it. Yes, I acknowledge it. It has quite a few flaws in it. But I guess, you know, partly for sentimentality, but also partly for seeing the development of that style of Australian film from the period, I'm prepared to overlook that. So if you're certainly if you're a local check it out if uh, you're not a local but you sort of want to see another facet to Australian cinema of the period I'd still recommend that you check it out yeah, yeah, agreed not the greatest film ever made but still very very entertaining so yeah I'll give it a thumbs up for mine so look once again thank you uh, gentlemen for agreeing to watch this film and you know especially thanks to you Mike for coming back on the program it's been wonderful having you back so what's, oh, I was glad to be here what's uh, happening in the booth over the next couple of weeks well you know October is coming up here so we've got our uh... Um, Shocktober uh, selections. For some reason, I decided that I was going to do two episodes a week. I don't know why. So uh, along with our normal programming, which includes things like The Shining and Martyrs, we're also going to be doing episodes on things like Pin and Killer Party and The nice. Thing. Very nice. So, you are the James Brown of podcasting. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, James Brown, though, I don't think he did any of his hard work without getting paid. And uh, yeah. unfortunately, that's that's not the case with podcasters. But you are the sex machine of podcasting, right? Woohoo, you know it. One, two, three, four. <laughs> and, and full disclosure, I'm looking forward to uh, joining you for an episode of the Projection Booth in October. We'll be discussing Potty Pool. Uh, yes, I was serving that one nice. up to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. I've, I've uh, just watched that, so I'm looking forward to watching a couple of other films that strike me it has similarities to and bringing that up in uh, the podcast. So that'll be uh, sometime in October. Looking forward immensely to recording that. Potty Pool is actually relatively close to my hometown. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's I can't believe how much Canada I have in, in October coming up here. Right, it's about two, maybe two hours, two hours from my hometown, but there is an actual place called Pontypool. Yeah. Nice. All right, so Tim, it's your choice. We'll call it Rocktober. Okay. Well, it, you know, it took me a while to kind of come to a conclusion, and I could have come to an obvious one, because I think that for a lot of people, the one go-to for Halloween when it comes to musicals and things that a lot of people seem to enjoy that, you know, is connected with Halloween is uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going with that. I actually thought you were. Instead, I'm going with a little film that is led by a voice. And it is led by the voice of one Mr. Levi Stubbs. Ow! Feed me, uh, Seymour! Exactly. I'm hungry! <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, I, I, I words cannot describe how much I'm looking forward to talking about that one. So, I thought that, you know, for October, we should do the Little Shop of Horrors. And I thought that's right up our alley. Because, you know, why why be, you know, uh, too obvious, right? You know, come out with something, you know, come out with something that's got a little bit more spank to it. So there you go. Something a little obscure. Right. 
Um, so, so uh, Tim, are we are we doing? Are we going to do the original or the remake, or are we going to compare and contrast both? Well, we can compare and contrast because I mean, obviously, you know, with with Corman's original, there's no real music involved. Of but course, there are, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yes, but, but but there are things that are you know similar. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'd, sorry, I'd say, forgive my foolishness there. I'd no, say. no, no, no. There's nothing wrong with that, Bernie, at all. I mean, it, you know, there's no way he can talk about you know the remake without talking about you know sure, Corman's yeah. film and you know Jack Nicholson as a sadistic dentist and everything else. Yeah, sure. Can you just imagine Jack Nicholson singing in his voice, because I'm a dentist <laughs> and I get up. I mean, really, I think the one time I ever heard him sing was as uh, that Tommy. Tommy. Oh, yeah, he, was right? a, he was abysmal. Oh. I think someone said to him, don't ever sing again. And he probably said, all right, fair call. Was he the dentist or was he the patient? He was the patient, Mike. I think he was. Okay. Right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, he was the patient. Remind me, because it's been so long since I've seen that version of Little Shop, but I seem to recall, was it Jack Nicholson that we see eating a flower? Is that is that him or was it someone else? Oh, jeez. Oh, I don't know. Okay, well, we'll find out before next month. Yeah. So, Okay, so Little Shop of Horrors will be October's, Rocktober's, Shocktober's see here. Yeah. I'm really so looking forward to that. That's um, I've, I've given my cards away about how much I love that film, but we'll have a lot to say about it anyway, I'm sure. All right, so once again, thank you, gentlemen, for uh, all reconvening for uh, this month's see here. And stay tuned. Well, <laughs> obviously, if you're looking at your podcast catcher of choice, you can see that there's another 30 minutes left, but don't. Turn us off. The uh, interview with Ian McFarlane is a good one. He's a uh, he had a lot of stuff to say. Fantastic interviewee, and I'm looking forward to inviting him on the Love That Album podcast in uh, 2017 because what he doesn't know about Australian music probably isn't worth knowing. So I'm looking forward to just inviting him in, asking one question, and then I can just walk away from the microphone because he's going to have plenty to say. <laughs> uh, a, a, a fascinating, really, really interesting fellow. So stay tuned for that. But until next month, once again, thanks for listening, and uh, we look forward to more shenanigans all the best cheers cheers to episode 33 of See Here Podcast, and I'm really very, very excited because on the other end, I shouldn't have a Skype connection, really on the other end of a phone call, I have Ian McFarlane, who is a rock historian and the author of the Encyclopedia of Australian Rock and Pop. Good evening to you, Ian. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Morris. Thanks very much for uh, asking me to have a chat. So the reason why I contacted you was to see if you could put some historical context on the film under tonight's podcast discussion, Oz, a rock and roll road movie, or 20th century Oz, as the Americans knew it. I guess before we sort of get into any of the historical context, when was the first time that you saw Oz, and what did you initially think about it? Ah, oh, right. Well, I didn't see the when it was released originally. It came out about sort of mid-1976, as I recall. I didn't see the original 
um, theatre release because it pretty much only had a very short run, I believe. But I do remember watching it on um, TV. It um, They ran it, you know, some ridiculous midnight spot. And it was just this fabulous little um, uh, movie, just a real fun movie. Um, I had I knew about it because I'd already uh, found the Oz uh, soundtrack album. Mm. So it was probably by that stage, it might have been the late 70s or early 80s. Um, and I've seen it a number of times since because it came out on um, DVD probably about 10 years ago, as you know. So, um, yeah, I, look, I just loved it. It was just a fun little movie, a, you know, just a, a really nutty kind of movie in, in many ways, but a really enjoyable thing. It's, you know, it's kind of part road movie, part glam rock fantasy, you know, so I really appreciated that side of it as much as, as, as a piece of film, you know. Mm. i got to say that there was one fellow who I didn't think would be a fan of it, but a rather unusual champion of the film is David Stratton. Exactly. That's the weird thing, because at the time it was released, you know, the, the critics pretty much dismissed it. They they just didn't get it. Um, they were very unkind to it in a lot of ways because they didn't get the irony of it or that it was aimed at young people. So, you know, there was a lot of this confusion about it because it wasn't... Was supposedly, everyone took it as a remake, a remake of Wizard of Oz and now Chris Lafone, the filmmaker, has always um, said that it wasn't meant to be a remake, more, uh, more an allegory, but... You know, maybe he kind of got that a little bit wrong. So it's definitely a movie of its time. But you're right, David Stratton. Uh, he uh, there's there's some quote that I've seen. I might even I'm just trying to remember whether it was on the DVD release where he called it one of the most inventive and enjoyable of those Aussie films. You know, because it's quite clever and it's noisy and it's you know it's a bit bit uninhibited in a lot of ways. Right. I've got a book about the history of Australian cinema of the 70s, and basically there's a chapter for every major film that was released throughout the 70s, maybe every film, full stop. And so he devotes about four to six pages about the film. And I think that David Stratton's opinion was that it took risks it wasn't being stayed, although, mind you, I mean, there were so many films in Australia at the time that were taking risks in their own way, but he, he saw things in it that maybe some of the stayed local critics weren't. Exactly. But you've got to remember that this, this on, on the cult movie level, this is around the same time as uh, movies like uh, Sandy Hubbard's Stone and Burt Dealing's Pure S or Pure Shit, mm. um, Cars That Ate Paris, and even a couple of years after later, Mad Max, you know, George Miller with Mad Max. They were just these... They, these films were made by kind of like mavericks in a lot of ways because we'd seen the the, re, the rise of, of, you know, quality Australian films such as Picnic and Hanging Rock and, you know, The Last Wave and those kind of movies, which are good as well. But I love these really nutty kind of um, cult movies, you know. So that's where, for me, it, it fits into that. And it was just that little window of, of time where that Oz movie came out and, and it caught... Um, a mix of that, as we're saying, the rock music. Well, in fact, it was probably the first Australian movie that drew together a rock music background with an allegorical story. And, you know, I, I just love all those movies of that period. Like Stone, I think, is fantastic. Pure S is one of the mad most mad-ass movies you're ever going to see. And I think Oz almost 
doesn't quite reach that that mad ass level of pure s but it's it's on that same you know same kind of shelf you know mm-hmm. i mean this film came out i mean well the whole australian film industry has often been spoken about and has been documented in films like not quite hollywood the whole australian film industry was going through this great revival and it was an exciting time and Really, I think the 70s is when Australian rock music came into its own and it was finding its identity and a lot of fantastic bands came out of the time and you know some of which are highlighted in the film. So the question really is, why aren't there more films of a rock music nature, you know, combining a great story or, or even just rock concert films? I mean, I know there's something of Sunbury and mm, yeah. you know, there's, there's a bit, I guess, of the music culture that's pervasive in films like Stone, but... There's really yes. nothing else like Oz, at least in that period. No, there isn't. And, and it, look, I, I don't have an answer for that one. It's just, I don't know, people maybe thought it was too difficult to, to swing it together. Uh, I think one of the things, and um, I might be getting away from the question slightly, but I'll come back to it. But one of the other things about Oz, when it came out, the other movie that that was out around about the same time or perhaps the year before was Tommy, the um, based on the Who's um, rock opera. Now that was your that's that's kind of like the epitome of your you know your your, your rock music um, film, and um, that would I mean that had that had a huge success, but that had millions of dollars behind it, right? Right. And it was right. of course it was that you know everyone knew the story of Tommy, so um, when that came out into the cinemas, I mean it, you know me and all my friends we, that was one we went to see. You see, so maybe we were caught up in that thing of um, still perhaps looking to overseas models maybe yes um, so local filmmakers didn't didn't want to take the risks and and I think this is definitely probably you know it's definitely the only one where a filmmaker such as Chris Lafane did actually take the the risk but I guess unfortunately when you're up against things like Tommy and even a few years before that the Woodstock um, film uh, documentary you know, Australian filmmakers probably thought, oh, my goodness, we haven't got a chance, but I'm only speculating. So it, that that is a hard question to answer, that one, Morris. Chris Lafane does have some of that spirit, that sense of spirit. I'm sure he was looking to uh, the overseas models, but I've also watched two of the short films. I mean, okay, so obviously his famous... Yeah, let's talk famous... a little bit about his background. Sure, sure. So, so he's known for having made the film clips for Eagle Rock by Daddy Cool, and I'll Be Gone by Spectrum. But he also went and made these short experimental films, one called 806 and another one called The Beginning. And 806 struck me as if he'd watched the monkey's film Head and thought, right, <laughs> I'm going to go in that direction. <laughs> what, what did you think of 806? Yeah, see, well, look, it's a snapshot of a particular time. Let's put him in context. He came out of the Australian uh, music industry or music um, environment in the 1960s. He was in a band called Campact, which was basically Keith Glass's band. And um, I think Chris was only in the last period of, of Campact. They'd had a couple of hits, songs like Drawing Room and uh, I think another one was I'm Your Puppet, I'm Thinking. Yes. And I, I think Chris joined after they'd had the hits. So he was a musician. Everyone in the rock, you know, the local industry knew him. As I said, Keith Glass was around and Ross Wilson who was in bands like the Pink Finks and the Party Machine and, of course, Daddy Cool. So they all knew Chris, and apparently he was always walking around with his camera. So he was almost capturing um, little snippets of their life. 
like Cinema Verite, you yes. know, just off the street. So I kind of I kind of like 806 for that reason. And there's a really funny segment in there with uh, Adrian Rawlins, dear old Adrian Rawlins, who was a who was a um, publicist and uh, scenester back in the day. And and I'm pretty sure it's that that bit where he's laughing uproariously and, and Chris Lafayne has basically got the camera almost down Adrian's throat, you know. So he was capturing a kind of little window, once again, using, using a cliche maybe, a window of opportunity or a window of time where his friends were just willing to be involved in his little movies. But the one I really like is, is the, the, one you mean, the second one you mentioned called The Beginning, which is uh, it's about well, it goes for about eleven minutes, but it's it's basically a sci-fi kind of allegorily allegory um, where it's set in this hippie community where it's visited by a spacecraft. I mean, now that's a real freaky little film. That's mm. great. But the funny thing about that is um, what um, Chris Lafayne managed to do was uh, I won't name any names, but he got a whole bunch of Melbourne musicians and their partners and friends and took them into the Yu Yangs or somewhere like that and, sh- and you know, said, oh, take off your clothes. It's a hippie <laughs> community, you know. It's 1970, you know, get with it. And so they were all willing to participate in these nutty, nutty ideas. <laughs> but uh, that's, a, that's a beauty, the, um, the beginning. It's a very interesting little film and it's got a great organ soundtrack by... Guy called Lindsay Burke, I think his name was. But boy, that's a really interesting uh, little film. That one. It's not one that could be made nowadays. No, not now. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There'd be all sorts of uh, unions on the on the floor, and uh, uh, you oh. know, health and safety, whatever you want to, whatever you want to say. So. You know, just the fact that um, they were willing to um, take off their clothes and uh, cavort around the, these hills and down on the beach and stuff like that, it's hysterical. It, it's be... really funny. So it, it's a real piece of its time, you know. I wonder how much Ross Wilson likes to be reminded of that film nowadays. <laughs> yeah, you do have to laugh. I don't think he minds because I've interviewed and um, I know Ross quite well. I've interviewed him quite a lot over the years. And, you know, he's just, oh, yeah, you know, which. It was just, you know, it was just part of what we what we did in those days, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, how does a musician who's made these couple of short films then sort of segue into making a full length feature film? Well, this was probably the biggest step for um, Crystal Fane. He had to go from making these little films on the fly. You know, you look at the film clips for um, for I'll Be Gone and and Daddy Cool's Eagle Rock, and uh, you know, by today's standards, they're very primitive, but they were so exciting back in the day. He had to look, I guess. You know, without trying to read his mind, he had to look a little bit beyond that. And the biggest thing at that time, as we as we've, we've both mentioned, the, the Australian movie movie industry was starting to make leaps and bounds. And you know, they were willing to. The Australian Film Commission was willing to fund some of these, you know, smaller ventures. So I'm sure it was was quite a, a, a long curve to actually get to the point where he was able to make the film. Um, it was funded by the Australian Film Commission. He'd written the story, and as I said, he'd, he's always maintained, he's maintained since in, in some of the interviews I've said, seen of him where he's, he said it's, it wasn't meant to be based on The Wizard of Oz, but unfortunately, it, well, you can't escape the fact. It's, you know, it's got, it's got a, a girl called Dorothy, you know, and there's there's an obvious character. There's obviously characters like the Scarecrow, who's the mm. 
Bruce Spence, the surfy, and the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion, who's the bikey, who is, you know, he's played by, um, I'm just trying to think of who, the Cowardly Lion. Uh, oh, yeah, uh, Gary, Gary Waddell. Waddell. Gary yeah. Waddell, that's right. He was in Pure S as well. So Chris Lafane and his people that he was involved with would have had to put in a lot of effort to get it to get it up and running. Um, fortunately, because he knew a lot of the musicians, he, um, he uh, roped in Ross Wilson to produce a soundtrack. And it's a it's a wonderful soundtrack. Everything just seemed to align for them. Ross Ross produced the soundtrack. He contributed one of his great solo songs called "Living in the Land of Oz." Jojo Zepp and the Falcons had a couple of their um, tracks on there, and Graham Matters, who who's the the wizard, and about half a sings, dozen other roles. That's right, exactly. Yes, yes, of course. But he sings "You're Driving Me Insane," which is the old uh, Missing Links song. Um, oh. But you know, of course, Ross would have known all those guys. So yeah, it was it was more just a case of it was just that tight tight knit community where they were all willing to chip in. Um, Ross Wilson was in between bands. Um, Daddy Cool had broken up finally for the second time. Um, he was in the process of putting together Mondo Rock, but he was he was around um, and um, was was ready to produce the soundtrack for them. So I seem to get the feeling that some of the, the Ross Wilson songs, apart from Wayne Duncan, were still with the other remaining members of Daddy Cool. So had they actually not split up, or just Wayne Duncan walked off? Do you know what was? Are you sorry? Like? Are you talking about the breakup of of Daddy Cool? Yeah, yeah. Well, so much like so, some of the songs on the soundtrack of Oz, like it's still like the, yeah. the actual title song. In fact, I think apart from Wayne Duncan, it's still the lineup of Daddy Cool. So had they not officially broken up, or did he just no, no? I don't. It's um, I'm just trying to remember. I'm just taking out the sleeve of the. Look, you're right. There's Wayne Burt. Um, right. Gary Young, they're all kind of in that. Uh, well, Gary Young um, and Wayne Burt and Jeff Burston and John Power were just in the process of, of working with um, Jojo Zepp and the Falcons. Right. So um, Ross does also have Ross Hannaford. Um, he's involved in there. So, look, it, it's, it's a mix of different players on Ross's tracks, but then you've got um, Jojo Zepp and the Falcons, which is obviously um, Wayne Burt, um, was on guitar and uh, obviously Joe Camilleri on vocals and sax and Gary Young, as I said, had already started playing mm. with them. Mm. Basically post-Daddy Cool, but in between the the time that Ross Wilson was setting up Mondo Rock. So there was no there was no clear, like it wasn't Daddy Cool involved, even though there's Ross Wilson, Ross Hannaford and Gary Young. So you've got three quarters of the, the original Daddy Cool involved in the soundtrack. Had Jojo Zepp actually recorded anything before they'd uh, written the songs for this film? No, this was their... In fact, Beating Around the Bush was their first single. So okay. it was um, it basically fed it right into their career. Although I must say... Now, here's a little snippet of information that has nothing to do with, with the Oz soundtrack, but the actual very first Jojo Zepp single is a version of Run Rudolph Run by um, Chuck Berry, but it's actually it's actually credited to Jojo Zepp and his little helpers, which <laughs> is um, yeah. So it was it was Joe Camilleri and once again Ross Wilson and Ross Hannaford on guitar, and um, I think maybe probably probably Gary Young and certainly Wayne Burt, but it was once again it was just prior to Jojo Zepp and the Falcons. Forming. So these were the very first Jojo Zepp and the Falcons uh, recording. So 
you know, it, Ross is Johnny on the spot again. You know, mm. he just re, he just produced Skyhooks, um, their first couple of albums. So he could do no wrong at that time. Absolutely. I mean, he was he was willing to be involved in anything and everything. And mm. Ross uh, Wilson certainly needs a sainthood, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he pulled off miracles, let me tell you that. Oh, for sure, for sure. You, you already mentioned the cowardly bikey, Gary Waddell. And watching him in this film, everyone of our age will know this song, but he reminded me of Bob Hudson's The Newcastle song. He out the window and he said, real, real suave, like he said, no, g'day. This nine-foot-tall hell's angel came out of the path and a milk bar. Looked at Norman and said, oh, what are you? Norm said, what are you? Black on the footpath said, you want to go, do you, mate, eh? Norm said, yeah, you want to go, mate. Every time he said, <laughs> rack off, I just kept yeah, thinking. that's right. That's right. That was one of those great sayings that, uh, you know, every school kid said. I mean, we loved it. It was just like... So what Chris Lafayne was also doing with his characters, and the di- you listen to the dialogue, and it's it's just so... So of its time, so Aussie, you know, rack off. Or, you know, when, when Gary Wardell, the cowardly lion, says, you, you know, you touch my my bike, I'll break your face or something like that. So he's got that, he's got, he's got that incredible, incredible nutty Australianism, you know, Australia, Australian personified, I guess. But um, all those films of that time. It was almost like taking the genie out of the bottle. Once directors and writers had the opportunity to put Australia onto film, onto celluloid, they decided they were going to make Australian stories for Australian audiences. I'm not sure what stage they decided, oh, maybe we'll see if we can get this onto the overseas market as well. But definitely a film like this, I'm not sure. Well, maybe maybe the overall story could appeal to an American market. And in fact, I read that it did sort of respectably in America. But well, interesting, look, interestingly enough, it uh, the fact that it even got picked up for American distribution is amazing. They did, as you mentioned, they changed it to 20th Century Oz, but apparently they left the um, Australian accents in, like the. Americans tend to dub over, um, you know, English or Australian movies. But in this case, for whatever reason, the distributors or the, you know, the people that picked it up for US distribution um, left the Australian accents in, which is, is pretty remarkable. Mm. So um, I don't... It, it did okay on that late-night cult circuit along with the likes of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, in the, This is in the US I'm talking about. Right. So, yeah, it, it did actually pretty good. It, um, there was a small, um, you know, once again, cult following for it. And I think getting back to that thing about Australian filmmakers, they just, they realised, look, we've got to have our actors talking in, you know, and, and talking in the Australian vernacular, so why not? There was a thing, I guess, in the 90s, there was this whole movement with Australian cinema where characters were exaggerated. And that seemed to be mm, okay. how American seemed to picture. I mean, I, I'm talking about, I guess... You know, films like Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and maybe some of the early part of Muriel's Wedding before it sort of gets all, you know, all dramatic. But, you know, there's films where, you know, Baz Luhrmann sort of stuff where things seem over-exaggerated. And I'm just wondering whether in this film, I mean, were the characters seem exaggerated or were they a genuine reflection of parts of Australian society to your recollection? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, look, I think so. I think the Americans got it in the sense that they took them at face value. They didn't see them perhaps as stereotypes or, or exaggerated characters. They just related to them. Yeah, when you get down to it, you can understand that the characters are very identifiable, you know. Maybe it's an archetype that um, people can connect with the, the, the original The Wizard of Oz story, but I think they appeal to the viewer just because of their naturalness, you know. That, mm. That's how I see it anyway, yeah. It's a, it's a good it's a good point about the the characterisation. So. Sure, you know, well before bands like uh, Midnight Oil or Red Gum or Goanna became our great political bands, you know, Ross Wilson, rather unusually for him, I think, made a very very bold political statement on the situation. I guess you know, white Australia versus Indigenous Australia in the title song "Living in the Land of Oz." It didn't really sort of have much to do with the content of the film, but it was a pretty bold statement for at the time oh look it certainly was and and i know that he actually uh, he said to me he, he, you know in previous times that he's very proud of that song because it was probably one of the first to perhaps even talk about the 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 idea of whites taking from the blacks you know aboriginal history and things like that so yeah and he talks about the government and you know so he he, he certainly was a bit of a pioneer in in that day that the, probably the first uh, Australian songwriter to, to write about Aboriginal land rights and things like that. statement there as well and rather unusual and it's, a, because it's a good it's a it's a good little poppy song too you know it certainly is i mean he wasn't someone who was known for that though he you know he, he was like considered no. ross ross wilson the party guy you know and daddy rocks off and and uh, exactly come back again yes. i'm just crazy about you babe and all of a sudden that's right i think i think by that stage he'd, he'd gotten over the the thing of Seeing, you know, that, or trying to appear appeal as like um, the cuddly kind of pop stars sort of thing. So he was definitely tapping into a very deep-seated well that he, yeah, he certainly pioneered. And you know, I don't think he necessarily influenced people like Midnight Oil or Red Gum. I think they obviously had their own sure. agendas and and viewpoints on things. But yeah, you got to give kudos to to Ross for being the, the first person to identify such an important issue and it, and it still resonates to this day. How did the song do as a pop single? Was it was it successful or was it ignored? Did it get played on 3XY? Yeah, it got played on 3XY, absolutely. That's where I first heard it and that's how I knew it was connected with the Oz uh, movie. It, it was part of the soundtrack. It, I think it was a modest hit. It was, you know, somewhere in the vicinity of probably top 20 in Melbourne. So, yeah, look, it, it got a bit of airplay. It, it really launched Ross. Um, it gave him the, the next kind of building blocks to move on to his next band, which was Mondo Rock. So it, it definitely set him set his um, you know career straight. I think he he has he had mentioned to me in a previous interview that he was kind of like at that crossroads from from the the 
great success of Daddy Cool and, you know, what was he to do next? So this was definitely the stepping stone into that next period of sustained success. So, sure. yeah, you know, it, I think it, it's, def, it's probably a little bit overlooked these days when, when people talk about classic Aussie rock songs. I think it's probably too rooted in its time because it's kind of got that semi-reggae, you know, scar almost kind of poppy feel about it. And uh, maybe even though the lyrics still resonate, it's probably never, ever going to be picked up as, you know, one of the classic Oz rock songs. But, But then again, Ross has probably written three or four others that fall into that category anyway. So, Just coming back to the film itself, I mean, I was absolutely in raptures watching the part of the film that's all <laughs> set in Melbourne. And you, know, you and I yes. spoke earlier on today on the phone and I'd mentioned, you know, saw Sutton's record bar and I thought, <laughs> I'd forgotten that name. And all of a sudden I just said, <laughs> yeah. I was there, I was there, I went there. And going through you know, all these various landmarks in uh, Melbourne's CBD and uh, there was one one moment where you see Dorothy walking down Manchester Lane and past the old Dendy Collins Cinema, and I thought, oh my, I know, I've forgotten all about that it's... place and became a, a porno cinema, I think, in the late nineties, yeah. early noughties or something. And now it's, I think, just a bank or, or um, a bunch of uh, uh, coffee houses or something yeah. like that. But it was just just like watching ACDC's "It's a Long Way to the Top" film clip. Oh yeah, it's a, a, another Look, great time capsule. Yes, it's perfect. It, it, it certainly is very evocative of that time. But, of course, the other thing you have to, uh, have to remember about this, Chris, Chris Lefane and in, in, in his film, um, obviously the funding, they basically had to film in the environments that they, that they knew and, and had access to. I mean, they, they didn't have a multi-million dollar um, budget where they could go and, and spot locations around the world. And because it was, a, you know, it was an Aussie movie, so, you know, they shot in Melbourne and areas of Victoria. Yes, there's Manchester Lane. And at one point, Dorothy's walking down Cherry Swamp Road. You see the swine for Cherry Swamp Road, which is which is up near Little River and the Yu Yangs. And right. um, at one point, you can spot the Corumburra Road, I think. You know, obviously, you know, it's different these days. But so there's Corumburra and there's Little River. And the other scene that uh, we should talk about, Morris, is Obviously, when she goes to, when Dorothy goes to the see the Wizard in concert, she walks into the Palais Theatre. So that that's right. another landmark, you know. But the actual Wizard concert was filmed live at the Maya Music Bowl. It was just before it was ACDC's concert, actually. So it would have been probably early '76, just before they went to England, maybe. And so apparently they had to set up um, the Wizard's uh, band and film in the changeover before ACDC went on. So oh, that, that was a question I was going to ask was, how, oh, right. on earth did they, how on earth did they get a whole crowd of people in the one, and at the time I thought it was a Palais Theatre on the inside as well, but how the hell did they get a whole crowd of people in a venue for a pretend band to be playing a song that they exactly. don't know? And, and you've got an answer that's saying, well, it was just done at the, come to see ACDC, you get a... Uh, free filming as well <laughs> exactly so that that's what happened so it was at the Maya Music Bowl and I think they would have shot it fairly straight you know they just had to get the band on film it 
Um, the wizard had to do his, his actions and pretend he was singing and so forth. And then they put all these effects on, uh, you know, in post-production. So it, it looks really, you know, it looks really glammy. You know, he's all dressed up in his finery and it looks impressive. <laughs> I was having a discussion with a friend during the week. We're both trying to identify some of the country scenes. And, you know, you've already sort of gone and identified, uh, you know, Little River. A couple of them. A, a, yeah. cu- a couple. And, uh, uh, but... I think I asked you earlier on today whether one of the scenes where they're sort of going down this winding road and you can see the beach off in the distance, that looked to me so much like Arthur's Seat or Rosebud area. Do you reckon that was part of the uh, filming locations? Yeah, I I think so. Um, I haven't really been able to pinpoint that one. Maybe it was probably a little bit further. I'm thinking toward Gippsland. I thought maybe if they were filming part of it, area... Um, you look, I'm, only get, I'm only speculating on that. You might be right. I think I think you probably are right, actually. Oh gosh, it was, as I said, it was just like a real blast to be able to play. Yeah, you know, spot the Manchester location. Lane. <laughs> yeah, Manchester Lane. Oh look, I, I when I was a teenager and I'd go into the city, I used to love going down those little lanes. Like you know, there was Manchester Lane. There was another one called Cathedral Lane just off Swanson Street, where um, there was another little record shop in there called Pipe Music. Pipe Records, Pipe In Pipe Records, and it was run by these two mad, um, I think they were Czech uh, boys, Danielle and and the other fellow was, ah, his name's escaped my memory. But you'd go in there and they had all those German and European electronic and progressive rock albums. I used to spend hours in there just just flicking through all the records, you know, bands like Can and... Armand Jewell and, you know, all those nutty German bands that I love. But uh, anyway, that's getting off the track. But, no, no, but it's you're a right, great part of the conversation. <laughs> the other thing that we haven't mentioned, well, we have in passing, is um, Graham Matters, who mm. <clears throat> is the, the wizard or, well, he's Wally, he's the wizard. What else does he play? He was another singer from that Melbourne kind of R&B scene in the, in the 70s and early 80s. And he went, he went on to do other things. Uh, sorry, other stage shows uh, such as the Rocky Horror Show. Um, yeah, he was very involved in rock and roll theatre, so he might be some an interesting person to track down. But, but I couldn't tell you whether any other musicians, you know, what their thoughts might be on it. I can only, excuse me, I, I can only tell you that I have a few a few friends and uh, you know who love the movie as much as I do, and obviously you do now as well. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> There are moments in it that they could never make nowadays. No. <laughs> Glenn the Good Fairy would never happen in 2016. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, exactly. But still, exactly. taken in, in context of the time, I'd love it if Umbrella sort of you know, went and re-released it with all those features that they put out the first time and maybe you know, track down Ross Wilson again and see in 2016 yeah. if he could shed some more light. But Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. I, I, I look, the one I think they also, well, it, it, it has come out on DVD in a beautiful packaging. It's pure S or pure shit, you know, depending mm. on which one to want to um, call it. I mean, that had so many extras. It had it, it even had the unreleased soundtrack, which, uh, see, that's another rock and roll movie in, in some ways because that was Martin Armiger. He, he right. helped produce right. the soundtrack for that, and, and he's gone on to a, a great career in um, movie soundtracks. So... 
Maybe that's one you can um, look at doing as, as as well as part of this show and um, try and get Umbrella to redo that one as well. I, I think it's a given that we're going to cover that at some stage. Ian, thank you so much. I'm sure the listeners out there will really appreciate the perspective that you've given. Uh, I guess probably just the final question I want to ask you is, you know, what's your latest project? Are you updating the Australian Rock and Roll Encyclopedia or you've got some other project on the go? <laughs> Uh, it, that's that's a very topical point because uh, hopefully within the next two two months I will be going into production to do the second edition of the encyclopedia. It's wow. it's only taken me about the last ten years to finalise it and and actually put it into some you know cogent whole because I had to I had to revise and revamp and. Um, um, you know, redo the whole whole thing basically. So I'm I am looking to a early 2017 republication of the encyclopedia in the second edition. So keeping fingers crossed for that if all goes to plan. Magnificent. I'm so looking forward to that. Oh, wow, that's great news. We'll definitely have you on the Love That Album podcast early in 2017. We'll talk about the encyclopedia and a a few other great Australian albums that we've been talking off air about. So. Uh, look, Absolutely, uh, and you know, I've, I've certainly will have a lot to say about some of my favourite Aussie albums. That's right. for sure. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.